the stuff that we're told that we're supposed to live our lives for leave us falling and empty and hitting the ground, and then what do we do? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? And you know, really what happens a lot of times, and we're gonna see Solomon kind of changing gears and dealing with this in the passage we're gonna look at today, is sometimes when life isn't working and we feel empty and maybe we start to hit the bottom, we think, well, you know, I need to try something else. And a lot of times people turn to religion. But what we're gonna see in Ecclesiastes today is that religion apart from Jesus, doesn't actually satisfy your soul. Listen, we are not here today to proclaim the message that you need to be more religious and that being religious is gonna fix your life and that being religious is going to satisfy your soul. In fact, uh, if you've been around East Tennessee very long, especially if you're a pastor, you've heard, uh, you've had people say to you, you've heard people say, well, I, I just need to get back in church. Or so-and-so, he or she needs to get back in church. And I'm a pastor, I'm obviously for you being in church, but people say this like it's some kind of just magic, cure-all, fairy dust that you going in church, to church is gonna fix everything in your life. And that's actually not the case. The Bible actually tells us in the context of talking about communion and maybe some to file away for, for later that you can actually come together to celebrate communion, come, back, come together in church and worship and actually end up being worse off spiritually. And we're gonna see some ways in this text that you can uh, do that today. Now, re remember with Solomon... Solomon had it all. He was the greatest man in the world. He was wealthy. He was wise. He was successful. He had all these great accomplishments, uh, built things, had everything he wanted, had all the pleasure that he wanted. And remember, he said, it's all vanity. It's all empty. He said, I hate life. But remember also that Solomon was a very religious man. I mean, he knew the Lord, but he got away from the Lord. And part of the way that he got away from the Lord was that he loved these foreign women. He, he married as a part of ratifying the treaties with these other countries, uh, the, you know, the daughters that these other kings would give him. And of course, in, in Deuteronomy, the kings have been commanded not to do this. And um, the, the specific command there was, you shall not intermarry with them nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But it says the next sentence in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon clung to these in love. And the essence of idolatry, really the essence of our sin, is when we love things in place of or more than Jesus. And that's what happened to Solomon. And, you know, he had the 700 wives and the 300 concubines, but it says in 1 Kings 11.4 that it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. 
And it says that Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And, and, and the worship of some of these gods in, in, involved sexual practices at times. Uh, some of these gods, like Molech, involved uh, the practice of child sacrifice. This is where Solomon got to. And so Solomon would not say to us that Anything we do that's religious is good. He would not say that uh, religion is the solution for us spiritually. He would not say that human man-made religion, the outside of the truth of God, would ever satisfy our souls. Now, let me say this before we, we get into the text, because I think in our American context, North American context, it needs to be said. Basically, I think today we're either taught, you know, either don't be religious or if you're going to be, just be spiritual, but it's this kind of vague, pluralistic, inclusive spirituality uh, of where, you know, as long as you're tolerant and accepting of others and, and kind of let people believe whatever they want to believe, then we'll kind of leave you alone and it's okay. You notice it seems like a lot of people don't like Christians today. There's a lot of pushback against Christianity. Why? There's different reasons. Some of it we brought on ourselves with our hypocrisy. But one of the biggest reasons is just simply Christianity says that there is only one way to God. That doesn't fit real well with this vague, pluralistic, inclusivistic spirituality. I mean, a real Bible-believing Christian with half a backbone is going to say that Jesus is the only way to God because it's what he said, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the message of the apostles, which should still be our message today, is there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. But the world says... You know, let's just, whatever you want to believe, you know, include everybody. There's many paths to God. You know, the great theologian Oprah, that's what she's proclaimed to the world uh, for years and years now. You know, you kind of come up with your own version of God and your own way to God. It's, it's inclusivism. But, but here's what I believe, okay? I think if we're just logical, maybe Christianity's not true, I believe that it is, but maybe it's not. But here's something that I know cannot be true, and that is that every religion, every path actually leads to God. And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, things that are different can't be the same. Right, I mean, I don't want to get too deep here, but uh, things that are different can't be the same. And religions fundamentally are not the same they're fundamentally different. I mean, you think about biblical Christianity. You've got the Trinity. You've got the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Ultimately, you have the idea of grace where every other religion in the world is based on human effort. I mean, you go to the Middle East, 
Nobody's sitting around having this debate. You get a, a, a committed Jew and a committed Muslim together, they're not going to sit around and argue over how much their religions are alike. They might fight over how different they are. And you actually study comparative religion. Religions are not the same, and things that are different can't both be true. Something in its opposite is not both true. Furthermore, we don't really believe that ideas are all equally acceptable, do we? Because if you actually believe that, you have to say that these people in uh, Solomon's day who were wa- worshiping Molech and practicing child sacrifice, that that's equally valid to every other religion. Or that Jim Jones, who led over 900 people, if memory serves correctly, to commit suicide in Guyana, that that's an equally valid path to God. Or David Koresh in Waco, that that's the same as, say, Gandhi practicing peaceful resistance. Do we really believe that? Or when you say that, um, you know, there's no absolutes, You can't say that your way is the only way or that your way is the truth, it's my truth and your truth. You're contradicting yourself because when you say there are no absolutes, you're stating an absolute. And if you really stop and think about it, the inclusivist is actually being exclusive because they're saying that the one who's the exclusivist who says Jesus is the only way is wrong. You see, it's fundamentally the same thing. It's just one's broader than the other, but the reality is ideas aren't narrow or broad, they're true or false. You see, the inclusivist actually has an exclusive position when he or she says every way leads to God. Christians are saying only one way leads to God. It's really the same thing if you strip away all the fluff and the emotion around it and get to the logic of it. And you know the best thing is? Christianity may be exclusive in the sense that Jesus is the only way, but it's really the most inclusive way, way thing in the world because it says anybody can come regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of whatever you have done. The Bible says, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. That's grace. It's the most inclusive thing in the world. And so, I just want us to get rid of this idea at the beginning that is so prominent in our culture to not get sucked into this. Uh, Maybe I'm especially talking uh, to teenagers right now. You're going to hear this all the time. It just does. I I didn't spend the last however many minutes that was quoting a bunch of scripture to you. It's just logic. And so don't think that any way actually leads to God and don't think we can approach God in any way that we want to. There's a true God, there's one way to him, and there's a certain way that he tells us to come to him, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you've got a Bible, let's look in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I want us to, to see today what he says here about some ways that we can wrongly approach God. And in the context of the book where he has this emphasis that we've looked at on this idea of everything is vain, everything is empty, I want us to see that human religion does not actually satisfy 
our souls. It doesn't bring satisfaction. So we're going to read Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. I'm going to try to explain it to us, and then we're going to uh, go to the New Testament like we have throughout this series and see how this is revealed in Jesus Christ. One thing I want you to remember, even when you're reading about Solomon, even when you're reading the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. That's what he said in Luke 24, 44. And he said uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke recorded in both, he said that a greater than Solomon is here. See, Solomon was the greatest man in the world, but what he's writing is, is, is uh, pointing to one who is greater than him, the one who all this is about, and that is Jesus Christ. So the text says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Does that mean God accepts everything we do religiously if he says we can offer the sacrifice of fools? He says, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity. And a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. And then this is the key to the whole text. But fear God. But fear God. Human religion does not bring satisfaction. And so there's three truths that I want to point out to you here to uh, develop that. And number one is this idea that religion, apart from Jesus, does not satisfy us. Religion apart from Jesus does not satisfy us. It's as empty as all of these other ways that Solomon has tried to fill his soul. Now, there's three uh, particular manifestations of it here that he, he, he spells out, that he draws out in this text. First, he says in verse one that religious rituals apart from Jesus do not satisfy us. Uh, notice what he says again in verse one. He says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Walk prudently means to guard your steps or to proceed with reverence. It means to be careful how we approach God. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. He's not our heavenly homeboy or something like that. He's great and mighty and awesome and he rules and he reigns over all. And and he tells us to approach him carefully. He says, fear God, reverence him, acknowledge him for who he really is. And so this means simply by performing some religious rituals, those things in and of themselves are not necessarily worship or they certainly don't in and of themselves make us right with God. Now, the examples I'm gonna give are not something I'm criticizing, 
They're even biblical. They're even the right thing to do. But the Bible's very clear that God looks more at what's going on on the inside than what we do on the outside. Right, we can fake being a Christian in front of people for a little while if we need to. We can appear to be really religious and really spiritual. But you know, in the Old Testament, God was continually saying things like, "Better to obey than to sacrifice." Uh, that you know, your your feast, your celebrations make me sick. Let righteousness and justice roll down like the rivers. Worship is how we live our lives. So you know, we're commanded to go to church, but just walking into a church doesn't make you right with God. You know, you can give an offering, you can serve in the church, you can sing songs, you can listen to uh, a sermon, but those things don't justify us. That's the opposite of the gospel. They might not even honor God. It's like, where's our heart? How are we living? Is there sin in our lives? Are we obeying? Why are we doing what we're doing? Because we can do things for the exact Opposite reason, uh, the exact wrong reason of why they should be doing it. Let me, let me, let me show you a clip that gives an example of that. Th this is Victoria Osteen. This is Joel Osteen's wife from Lakewood Church. It's only about uh, 30 seconds, but uh, uh, just listen to closely to what she has to say, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. So did, did, did you catch that? And um, now, I, I, listen, th this is maybe a little far out there example, but I don't think it's that far out. I, I think a lot of spirituality in America is use God to get what you want. You're at the center of the universe, not God. This is what she's saying. God exists to make you happy, to do what you want him to do. This is about you, not him. And, and, and do you understand that to come up with a message like that, even 30 seconds of it, that, that you have to pretty much rip every page out of the Bible and write your own Bible because the whole whole overarching point of the Bible is the glory of God. And understand, this is coming from what I think is the second largest church in America and when, probably the largest ministry in America when you look at their TV and their book audience. There's tons of people being affected by this kind of thinking. So just religious rituals, religious things we do aren't necessarily going to please God, aren't necessarily going to satisfy our soul. You realize, number two, that prayer, apart from Jesus, does not satisfy us. Look at what he says again in verses two and three. He says, do not be rash with your mouth. And notice the context. He's not talking about speaking to other people. He says, let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So don't take this out of context this week and use it on your spouse. He's talking about us and God. He's talking about prayer. 
And so what he's saying is, just because we pray, this doesn't mean we're going to be right with God or it's going to satisfy uh, us on the inside. You know, all kinds of people pray. But you can pray to the wrong God. I mean, a Muslim can pray to Allah five times a day. It doesn't mean they're going to be right with God. I mean, you know, you can pray just rope prayers or, uh, you know, you can pray a bunch of Hail Marys or something like that. It doesn't mean you're going to connect you to God. I mean, when I was at at Carson Newman, I had a professor uh, one time who prayed instead of to God as our Heavenly Father, who prayed to God as our Heavenly Mother. Now, once again, you're not going to find that in uh, the the Bible. So if you invent your own God, it is not necessarily going to help you out to pray. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. Uh, The key to prayer is not a formula. It's not uttering the right words and the right phrases and, you know, just like then God has to jump and do what we tell him to do. The key to prayer is knowing who we're talking to, a heavenly father who loves us and knows what we need even before we ask. And in prayer, we're not twisting God's arm and trying to get God to change his mind. We're just trying to get, line ourselves up with God so uh, that we'll receive what he has for us as his children. So it's not the outward stuff. He tells us here third in verses four through seven that vows apart from Jesus, do not satisfy us. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. He says, pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and, and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Some of, the, some of the phrases there. Now, think about the Old Testament though. How many times when Moses was leading the children of Israel, as he led them out of Egypt and then uh, you know, leading them through the wilderness, How many times did God tell them to do something and they're like, Moses or or God, we're gonna do everything you tell us to do. And how many times did they do it? And then when you come to Joshua chapter one, where Moses dies and, and, and Joshua takes over, you know, God appoints him as the new leader and he's speaking to them and, and telling them what to do. Uh, there, there's a phrase in Joshua chapter one where the people say to Joshua, Joshua, we're gonna do everything that you tell us to do just like we did with Moses. And if I'm Joshua, I'm like probably face palming myself and resigning on the spot and like, Lord, if they're going to treat me like they treated Moses, what have I done to get put in this position? Now, we can laugh at them, but how many times in our lives have we promised God, God, I'm going to do this. God, I'm not going to do that again. God, if you'll do this for me, Lord, if you'll answer this prayer, if you'll bail me out of this situation, if you'll give me a date this weekend, or whatever it may be, I promise, Lord, I'm never going to do this again, or I'm going to start doing this, or whatever it may be. And how many times have we followed through? I'm guilty. You guilty? Listen. Don't make any vows to God. Don't make deals with God. 
God's already sealed the deal at the cross. We're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. All the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. Just claim those promises in Christ by faith. Look to him and rely on him. You don't have to, listen, if you know the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the worst thing you can do is try to make a deal with God. God's already sealed the deal with the blood of Christ. He's with you and for you. You're his child. He's never gonna leave you or forsake you. He has good for you. So the point of all of this is that religion is not the answer. We need Jesus. There's a great story from, from history. There's a, um, a, one of the most well-known English Baptist pastors from the 17th century was a man by the name of Benjamin Keach. Uh, had an extremely fruitful ministry, was very well known. Now, he had a son named Elias who moved to America uh, as, as uh, an adult. And when he moved here, he wasn't converted. He wasn't a Christian. But, you know, he'd grown up in this pastor's home and, you know, he uh, knew all the phrases and the language and the lingo like a lot of people today who can navigate around church but have never really truly met Jesus and had their hearts and their lives changed. And so when he got to America, he was, uh, had some financial struggles. And so to make a living, he used this lingo and knowledge he had from growing up as a pastor's kid. And he, just, he's, he got the right clothes that you would need to have in, in, in that day and time, you know, dressed in black and all this kind of stuff. And he started preaching. He became a minister. And so he's not saved, but he's preaching sermons. And one day he was preaching to a group of people. It's like he stopped in the middle of it, and they, and they thought something was wrong with him. They thought something medical was going on. Like if you've ever seen somebody like have a, have a seizure, but it's not a breakthrough seizure, it, it kind of sounds like something like that, almost like he was in a trance or something like that. But what had happened is while he was preaching, God, the Holy Spirit, had convicted him of his unregenerate heart and his sin through his own preaching, and this lost guy preached a fake sermon, at least outwardly, but preaching the gospel, got saved by his own fake money scheme preaching. God saved him. I mean, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He has to uh, re regenerate our hearts. And so, I mean, God just did a work in him. He went and found another pastor who counseled him, who baptized him, who ultimately ordained him. And God ended up using him greatly like he had used his uh, father. But what happened was, this happened when God got a hold of his heart. He stopped faking religion. He surrendered Jesus. He met Jesus. And, and, and my my point is, is I bet that there are people in this room, there are people watching online that you can talk the talk and you can, you've been around church and, and you're trying to come across as religious and spiritual and a good Christian, but in your heart, you're empty because you, deep down, you know you're faking it and you need to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ today. So religion apart from Jesus does not satisfy us. But we also need to see here, and this is why the first one is true, is that religion apart from Jesus does not satisfy God. 
Religion apart from Jesus does not satisfy God. Remember again how he ended this. But fear God. But fear God. It's not the rituals. It's not the outward things. It's how we approach God. And ultimately, it's who we approach God through. You see, real worship, according to Romans 12.1, Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, based on the mercies of God. The mercies of God is just a short little synopsis, meaning everything that God has done for us through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the mercies of God. So he's saying, if you want to approach me, it, it, really, you can't approach me. I had to approach you and bring you to myself. And that's what Jesus came to do. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act uh, of worship. It's worshiping the real God in the right way through Jesus Christ. It's offering ourselves to him uh, in, in surrender, in devotion. It's how we live our lives because worship is ultimately how we live day in and day out. This is what satisfies God. It, it, it's Jesus and what he's done and then him working in us and through us and then us coming to him through Christ in fear. Now, does fear mean like, um, you know, we ought to approach God like he's holding a gun to our head? No. It means reverence, respect, honor. It's acknowledging him for who he really is. Uh, Chuck Colson's put it this way. He says, we need to know the fear of the Lord, the overwhelming, compelling awe and reverence of a holy God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It provides the right perspective on God's sovereign rule over all creation. The sense of God's power and perfection that dwarfs mere men and women that causes them to bow and worship and glory in his amazing grace. You see, I believe the key to life is seeing God for who he is because once we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And once we see ourselves for who we really are in light of who God really is, in light of his holiness and his sovereignty and his greatness and his power and the fact that he's the judge judge of the living and the dead, we know then that our only hope is the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. We know that he is the only way to God. And once we see this, we're never going to treat God like he's our genie in the sky who's all about us and that he's here to make us happy instead of us being here to honor and glorify him. See, Jesus is the way. He, he, it's not religion, it's Jesus. Because there can't be sin in the presence of this holy, awesome, sovereign, ruling, reigning God. And so Hebrews 9 has put it this way. The writer of Hebrews says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in, in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Notice this phrase, it's an awesome phrase, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. See, this is what religion says. You keep doing this often. You keep doing this over and over and over again. And maybe this will be enough. But apparently it's never enough. 
But this is the good news of the gospel. It says that he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, and it literally means once for all, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You don't need religious rituals to satisfy God or to satisfy your soul. Jesus, once for all, took care of all that. You just have to come to God through faith in him. You see, this is, let me give you a couple, couple of analogies of kind of what religion is like. Um, at one time, I remember robbing my wife, washing some clothes, and, you know, she uh, put the clothes in, turned the washer on, but then at some point, she discovered she had forgotten to put the detergent in. And so, you know, running the washing machine without, de- without detergent is not actually going to make anything clean. And that's kind of what religion's like. It's going through the motions without actually getting clean because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Or uh, maybe it's kind of like this. I, I don't know if moms still do this today, but when I was a kid, my mom and uh, lots of other moms, at least in East Tennessee, liked to give spit baths. <laughs> Anybody ever had a spit bath? I see there's some kids in the back raising their hand. That's awesome. So apparently this is still a thing today. I never quite understood the logic. I mean, I sort of understand the logic of it. You know, I'm sure when my mom would give me a spit bath, you know, I was being a boy, getting dirty, disheveled or whatever. Maybe I'd just been eating, got food on my face. We were going in public. She didn't want to look like a bad mom and have a dirty kid in public. And so, you know, she would lick her fingers and wipe whatever it was off of me. Now, uh, it would seem like to me, though, that in her doing this, yes, I looked better, but it actually made me dirtier because I had her germs on me. In fact, if I had done this to somebody else, I would have gotten spanked for it if I'm uh, rubbing my spit on somebody else. But for a mom, this is apparently an okay thing, but I I think it's a great picture of religion because religion makes you look better, but it leaves you dirtier in the end because it still leaves us in our sin and it makes us prideful because we think about what we've done. So religion apart from Jesus doesn't satisfy us and it doesn't satisfy God. But this is the good news. This is the gospel in a sentence that only Jesus satisfies God and therefore he satisfies our souls. Only Jesus satisfies God and therefore he satisfies our souls. Now, so let's bring this over to the New Testament to conclude this and and see how all this hopefully fits together. Let's look in, in Romans chapter three, starting in verse 19. The Bible says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What's this saying? It's saying the law is like a mirror to show us our sin. It's not a savior to make us right with God. So this means that uh, we can't be saved by our own efforts, by our own religious activities. Justified means to be declared righteous. And, and so the law is showing us that we're unrighteous, and so we need a Savior. It's not showing us that we're right with God. So that's kind of like the diagnosis of, the, of our condition spiritually. 
But here's God's prescription for the cure. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God. Here's the righteousness of God. It says it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through keeping the law. None of us have kept the law. When we look at the mirror of the law, it just shows us that we're sinful, that we're idolaters, that we put things ahead of God, that we haven't loved him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We haven't loved other people. We've lied. We've stolen. We've done all these things. We're guilty. That's what the law shows us. But the good news is the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he says, even though we've sinned and fallen short of his glory, being justified, being declared righteous freely, which is an awesome word because it means it's free to me and you because Jesus paid all the price. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation's a big word. It means atoning sacrifice. It means that through the sacrifice of Jesus as he bore our sins, the holy and the righteous nature of God was satisfied, not by by our efforts, but by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And through this, verse 26 says that he can be just, he can still be righteous, he can uphold his law, but he can be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Our religious efforts don't satisfy God. Jesus satisfies God and God accepts us and is pleased with us when we trust Christ and are in him. That's the answer for our souls. That's true work. Worship. That's what honors God and glorifies him, not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. In Philippians chapter three, Paul shares his testimony. And what he's really trying to do is to show us that our religious efforts are never gonna be enough to get us to God. And he says this. He says, we're the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You want a succinct definition of a Christian? There you go. Have no confidence in the flesh and rejoice in Jesus Christ. In other words, I have no confidence in my ability to save myself, but I'm rejoicing in Jesus because he did it for me. He says, I have no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. In other words, what he's saying here is he's saying, if anyone could have saved himself by his own uh, Religion, it would have been him. And he gives his spiritual resume to prove his point. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Can any of us measure up to that spiritual resume? I don't think so. But then notice what he says. What things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yes, yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
You want to come to God? You want to be right with God? He's saying it's through Jesus Christ. It's not through our religious efforts. This is what satisfies God. But see, here's the good news is what satisfies God then leads to us being satisfied when we're in Christ. In Isaiah 55, this great Old Testament passage about grace, he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That's what Solomon's saying to us about religion. Why spend your money on what doesn't satisfy? He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What's the abundance that delights our soul? It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's all about Jesus. Religion doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't satisfy God. Jesus satisfies God. And when we're in him, and we're in Christ, we're glorifying and worshiping God, and God is blessing and fulfilling us. The whole message of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. From uh, Genesis 1-1 all the way through the book of Revelation, a greater than Solomon is here. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. That's the point uh, of the Bible. Listen, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. It's not about, uh, you know, God making us happy. It's about us pleasing and honoring and worshiping God. It's all about Jesus. Let me close with this. It's something kind of adapting from Tim Keller. And just think about Christ in the Old Testament. Just think about Jesus. It's all about Jesus because the question, the, the, the thought, the reality I want to leave you with is simply you need Jesus. You see, you know, to me, the point of what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes, once again, I had it all and I was empty. Had the money, had the women, had the fame, had the wealth, had the things, had the success, and I was empty. But I had religion. He tried about every kind of religion there was out there, and he was empty. And God is using this to try to remove the lie that we can find fulfillment and satisfaction and life and hope and peace in anything other than Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness, not the garden, and whose obedience is imputed, is, is placed to our account. Jesus is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain by wicked hands, his blood now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the better ark of Noah who carries us safely through the wrath of God revealed from heaven and delivers us to a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God uh, to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go out into the world not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, 
we can now look at God taking his son up on that same mountain, that mountain of Calvary, and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you do not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Uh, Jesus is the, uh, is the better, uh, true and better Joshua who leads us into a land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. Jesus is the better Ark of the Covenant who topples and disarms the idols of this world, going himself into enemy territory and making an open spectacle of them all. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends, which is us. Um, Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Listen, if you ever listen to somebody preach and they tell you to go slay your giants like David, turn it off. You don't want to be like David. David was an adulterer and a murderer. You need to see Jesus in David, that he's the one who slayed the giants in, in, in our lives. He's the one who flung the stone when we were sitting around like all the Israelites, afraid and cowering and having no clue as to what to do. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who just didn't risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Having been lowered into a lion's den of death, he emerged early in the morning alive and vindicated by his God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could safely be brought in. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who wasn't in the belly of the, the fish for three days and three nights, but in the belly of the earth, but he triumphed over death and rose to give us new life. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. It's all about him. He is the only way to God. He is the only one who will satisfy God. He is the only one who will satisfy our souls. So why would we try to come any other way?